0: Coming up on the Get Lean, E Clean podcast. What I was super impressed by, and my perspective started to change on sugars, is that there is very little uh, evidence that sugar causes anything bad. Um, and what I mean by that is there is a ton of research, animal and human, where sugar, removing sugar from a diet like causes a weight loss or fixes some kind of problem or giving animals a bunch of sugar causes a problem, but it's always in the context of at least moderate, if not high fat intake. So, um, I've never found a study where, because if you believe that sugar is bad, then the worst thing would be to have all of your calories from sugar and none from fat. Whenever you do that though, you see,
1: um, no problems. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, E Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Kyle Mamounis. Kyle has a PhD in in nutritional sciences from Rutgers and is currently performing biochemical research. Kyle has an interesting background of trying almost every diet out there and has formed his opinions based on his self-experimentation and research. We discussed PUFAs for saturated fats, is sugar really bad for us, the diet that makes mice lean, endotoxemia, and is one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Really enjoyed my interview with Kyle. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grinn, And on today's show, I have Kyle Mamunasan. on. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. I'm excited um, to have you on. You've been on a bunch of different podcasts that I keep an eye on. And I'm like, I got to get Kyle on. Uh, he's had some great papers that are out there. Health researcher. Maybe give the audience just a small background of, you know, what what you've been up to and you know what type of research you've done over the last few years recently i haven't been up to really anything in the health
0: world <laughs> but um i came into it through uh a personal interest just being online back in like internet what was it 1.0 what's 1.0 you know before social media but wow. uh
1: okay
0: you know like say 2004 2005 like nutrition forums people arguing about raw veganism and carnivore all the way back then um Mm -hmm. so yeah so i i was so obsessed with that stuff that i uh changed my major to biology and then went uh and got a phd in nutritional i think it's called nutritional science whatever my department called the degree Mm -hmm. and um to do research on this stuff and over that very long time period from when I was maybe 19, I started experimenting with vegetarianism. I'm 39 now. So I have been, you know, either online reading and arguing with people about how vegetarianism is better when I was, you know, 20 or something, uh, for, for like, uh, 20 years. Um, and, yeah, that's, I guess that's one way to put my background.
1: So you've been through a, a few iterations of different diets and then you became a health researcher because you were, this is something that intrigued you. Uh, what different diets did you try and, and what are you currently doing? Um, I did, uh,
0: It's it's kind of not fair to say because when I started with regular vegetarianism, I didn't really know anything. So I could probably do a much better version of vegetarianism now than I did then. Right. Um, and when I started like the raw vegan diet, um, this was when David Wolf, who I guess has brand- rebranded himself as like a conspiracy theorist guy oh, okay. um, or something. Uh, and his middle name is now Avocado. Back when he was just <laughs> David Wolf, the author of um, a book called Nature's First Law. Which I don't know, early two thousands. Um at the end that every the end of every chapter uh finishes with the same sentence, cooked food is poison. Um so so basically I was like, you know, truly believed that, you know, like all of the, the vital life force of foods or whatever is in like uh, the raw form, and if you cook it, you kill it, like that kind of thing. Sure. So, you know, I did like a raw vegan thing, super skinny. You know, I didn't even know how much calories were in things. So um, let alone the macronutrients and everything else. Uh, And then I started coming into contact with um, sort of carnivore adjacent ideas online, um, specifically through Agenus Vanderplanets, who was the guy who advocated a raw diet, but with animal foods, uh, raw milk, cheese, and meat. Uh, honey just anything that you can eat raw Oh, <laughs> uh, so he was eating raw meat as well yes and so was i Oh, that was probably my longest diet uh that was i was that was an extreme diet i ate um most of my calories from raw meat probably from around 2008 to 2012 13 maybe so four to five years. Wow. Um, it wasn't 100%. Uh, but yeah, I my, my most stable, really weird diet regimen was I was part of a co-op uh, in, uh, I lived in New Jersey, but close to the Delaware River. So Pennsylvania is right there. And in Pennsylvania, you can sell unpasteurized milk. I think it's only Pennsylvania and California. I haven't checked recently, but at the time, it was the only two states. And there's a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch in Pennsylvania, so they had these co-ops where they would sell milk and then their other farm products to people that would be part of these co-op groups, where you would, you know, leave a check or money or whatever. It's actually a really interesting system. You, where I went, I went to this lady's, this nice lady's house, and there was coolers, and you would open them up and take the stuff that you had ordered out and like leave money, like cash or checks, like, like, a, uh, like and that, a drug
1: deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: I mean, I'm like shocked that
1: like. You'd get you like know, they, arrested.
0: Yeah, or that like people didn't just
1: take the money. I don't know. It was crazy, yeah. but it worked. For years, I was doing this. So you were buying... So yeah, I would... Yeah, I'm sorry. You were buying raw milk, unpasteurized, unpasteurized milk from this lady, I, leaving money. Well, from Pennsylvania Dutch farmers, yeah, that would
0: drop yeah. it off at her house. And then also bags of beef stew meat, which is like the cheapest cut. So just like, you know, chunks of um beef that are like kind of rough cuts um that you would generally cook for a long time to soften them up yeah and then also bags of pure suet so the internal fat and i had a food processor and i would pulse them together at about a 50/50 ratio so that would give you like um because you know fat has more the 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 meat would be heavier but the fat has like more than twice the calories per gram so if you put them together volume wise about 50 50 you probably get like 70% of the calories from the fat and like 50 from uh, 30 from protein or something like that that was kind of my okay. ballpark estimate and that was like my normal meal so i do that like twice a day like just a big bowl of like
1: meat slurry wow. and you, uh, so the did you ever get Like sick or did anything happen? No. The only time I ever got
0: sick eating anything raw. Well, I mean, obviously, I don't like for all I know, I could have had like a long term parasite, (laughs) but I never had, you know, any serious symptoms or anything. I did get um, acutely sick once when I was pretty early on this diet. And sometimes I would eat random things. So that was when I had a very regimented. Which, by the way, if you want to do a weird diet, you should have a system like that, where you don't have to think about it, it's kind of like regimented a fa- factory. Yeah. Um, but so I had to, like a piece of um, frozen salmon, just like a salmon fillet, and I let it thaw on a counter, and I kind of just let it sit there for like I don't know, eight hours or something, and then I ate it, and I was just hanging out later that night like, watching TV, and I was I started to like sweat and feel really bad, and then I like barfed, and then I felt okay so i mean i have had food poisoning from eating raw stuff but um i mean i've had food poisoning a lot more times from just like right you know other it's just random stuff right i mean so but yeah if with the um with the raw meat most parasites are killed if you freeze it not all so if you get like a, a from a good quality and it, you freeze it or it's been frozen at some point and you can kind of look at it and it's not ground is then like things are introduced you know from the outside um there's some techniques that people do to avoid stuff like that but
1: and what I, th- I still i yeah. still make
0: tartare once in a while
1: oh okay and so like so you went through the raw stage mm-hmm. you did vegan you did raw vegan for a little bit yeah and then after that what happened after the raw stage? Um, I just started adding more like normal
0: foods. Um, th- there were kind of two influences, I guess, if you count life, like just social pressures. because So I've always been sort of an extreme guy. Um, so I was able to handle like every day somebody being like, oh, my God, what's in your glass lock container? Is that raw <laughs> meat? Like every day. um for for the first year it's kind of fun to be like somebody who has an interesting thing and then after a while it's like yeah i just want to be normal yeah um but the, the two like intellectual influences were one i had started graduate school uh a phd program in nutritional science in the fall of 2012 at rutgers university and you know i was learning a lot and um you know, I don't necessarily agree with everything that I was taught there and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I started to be like, OK, maybe like ketogenesis is like shooting for that all the time or, you know, burning fat as the preferred preferred fuel sources doesn't have as much uh, slam dunk evidence behind it as I thought from reading these forums for like, you know, three years. Mm hmm. Um, and then just about that same time, because I went to the first, oh no, sorry, it was the fall of 2011, uh, the, that I started the graduate school and I went to the first ancestral health symposium, which was this like paleo, paleo adjacent kind of conference that people would have. I mean, it's called a symposium. Uh, and the first year they had Robert Lustig when he was doing the fructose thing, um, they had Gary Taubes and people like that, Denise Minger. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in California. It was at UC Berkeley, I think. And I met Danny Roddy there. Uh, and he had just sort of flipped over to the repeat thing. So I started reading Ray's ideas as well. So the combination of that and then just studying sort of like a, in a regular nutrition program made me It seriously undermined my faith in um, the current crazy diet I was on, or whatever, not to disparage it, extreme diet I was on, Uh, and actually extreme diets in general. Uh, So I started adding some pretty normal foods, like um, the Ray Pete orange juice thing. Uh, I started drinking coffee. I never really drank coffee. I even worked at a coffee shop in undergrad, and I Hmm. still didn't drink coffee. (laughs) <laughs> um potatoes you know just normal foods uh, i started cooking meat once in a while if you can believe that mm. uh and yeah i just sort of transitioned into a pretty normal diet Um, i would say i have a pretty normal diet now um i do a few things that are sort of influenced from the repeat world like i take supplementary collagen um sometimes i take st- different vitamin and mineral supplements. I'm not super consistent, uh, with a lot of supplements mostly because I don't notice that many effects. Um, like I try to take a vitamin E when I eat a fatty meal just to get some vitamin E, but that's not the kind of thing that you feel an acute effect from. Right. So it's not like, you know, Oh, I have to take this every day or else I feel bad kind of thing.
1: And in 2017, and I'm staring at it right now, you wrote that publication on the dangers of fat metabolism Mm -hmm. perhaps maybe uh, um dive into that a little bit and the basis behind that
0: publication yeah that was my the culmination of my so i started a project at rutgers on studying fats pufa versus saturated fat it was a mouse experiment and i kind of started with um more of the carnivore perspective where saturated fat is good and anything you can find in meat is good you know and um as i was doing so a big part of the a dissertation is a introductory literature review and in nutritional science there's a few big questions that have been asked a million times in a million different ways um you know things about fat like high fat diets to cause you know, obesity or whatever, diabetes type symptoms in animals, uh, of course, human research as well, clinical, and then uh, carbohydrates, specifically sugar. So um, to couch my studies in the history of the literature, you know, I'm reading all this stuff and, and, and uh, there actually is, it, it's kind of a toss up uh, when you read science about fats, like which fats are healthier. It's actually kind of, I don't know. Also animals, you know, like mice, they don't eat a lot of fat. So when you feed them fat, like even if it's the healthiest fat, their, their outcomes probably aren't similar to ours. But what I was super impressed by, and my perspective started to change on sugars, is that there is very little uh, evidence that sugar causes anything bad. Um, and what I mean by that is there is a ton of research animal and human where sugar removing sugar from a diet, like causes a weight loss or fixes some kind of problem or giving animals a bunch of sugar causes a problem, but it's always in the context of at least moderate, if not high fat intake. So, um, I've never found a study where because if you believe that sugar's bad then the worst thing would be to have all of your calories from sugar and none from fat whenever you do that though you see um no problems so and, and in many cases a weight loss you know situation
1: sort of like if you cut out sugar so you're, kind of a thing so you're saying that everything that's talked about regarding high sugar is also um in combination with something that's high fat yeah high or perhaps moderate fat so like like,
0: um this is one thing i talked about uh on some stream with danny and and my buddy leo um i was i i knew i had remembered this and i wanted to double check but the animal diet the mouse diet uh company that i use research diets it's in um New Brunswick or North Brunswick, right next to Rutgers. And it's like the biggest animal diet producer in the world. And even its competitors use the same formula. So it's like this, the gold standard. And their control uh, synthetic diet. So you can just buy like a control mouse chow, but it's not, you don't know exactly what's in it. You know, it's like, it's, it's either, you know, 12 to 17% this, that kind of thing. But the one that's like put together with exact Measurements. Um, it's like 70% carb and like 15% protein or something. And then, and, and then uh, like 15% fat, something like that. It's overwhelmingly carbohydrate. And half of the calories is just from sugar, like sucrose. And this is the control diet that you use to compare to a diet that might make an animal fat. So the control diet that keeps mice lean, like all around the world, in labs all over the world, is a diet that 35% of the calories come from table sugar, and another 35% come from starch. And then uh, the remaining is mixed, um, I think, casein, milk protein, for the protein, and depending on the source, like lard or whatever kind of probably a vegetable oil for the fat.
1: So. Yeah. That's okay, so uh... so the from the from you're saying from like the gold standard when it comes to doing these tests, these animals are being for the baseline, you know, to let's just say for maintenance purposes, they're being fed 70% carbs, half that coming from sucrose, the other half coming from starch. And that's like and then so they're they're taking that as the baseline and then they're 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 altering the macronutrient content to see how this affects the animals yeah or you would give the animal a drug and just have
0: a standard diet so that it's like you know you just put in your methods like we use this standard diet so there's no question about you know that but what my point is and what really culminated in the like what what exactly is the evidence that sugar is some sort of super causative agent in problems if and, you know, people could say, oh, well, that's mice. It doesn't matter. Well, okay, then they shouldn't use animal studies either. But if we're going to consider animal studies, mice all over the world, if if sugar, I mean, 35% is a lot. That's over a third, right? <laughs> of mm-hmm. their calories is coming from table sugar. If that was extremely obesogenic in animals, then all of those mice would, I mean, they'd have to be getting fat and they're not. So... um, know we could say that's different for humans but i have yet to see a human study where they you know have a low-fat diet like say for a human low-fat would be i don't know less like 15 percent or less of calories that's pretty hard to do yeah if you've ever tried to count calories and macros and stuff like you can't put full-fat milk in your coffee kind of thing Mm -hmm. um So, so that kind of a thing, you know, or or even zero fat. I mean, if we were going to be really rigorous about it and then, yeah, replicate that sort of diet. So most of the cow, you know, have like a, however many grams of protein per body weight and then figure out the calories from that. And then the rest is carbs and like half of it from sugar. Um, Yeah, that, I don't think that's been done. I found this, there's this one really old paper where it was done to one guy who was a lab assistant in the uh burrs lab i think burrs the people who discovered uh the essential fatty acids so they put him on a fat-free diet because they were trying to induce essential fatty acid deficiency in humans and they couldn't it was just one guy um a healthy guy in his 20s but they just fed him a bunch of like defatted milk uh all kinds of bread products they were able to make without fat um, fruit, stuff like that, just pure sugar. And he lost weight. Uh, he, he, it talks about all these like positive outcomes he had. Blood pressure went down. Um, so yeah, if sugar is, so, so what I, I went through with, uh, and criticized at first with that paper, the idea that burning fat is necessarily better because I, I don't see a lot of evidence for that, for that like perspective that it's better than burning carbs. Um, and then the following year I had a follow-up talk about the sugar side of it. Um, like the sugar cause problems. And I was also going to make that into a paper because they asked the people who give talks there. That's what that original paper was, was a, it's called an extended abstract. So my talk condensed into a written form. Um, and it didn't work out on the second one because they kept like, they just didn't want to publish it. (laughs) (laughs) I actually saved the email correspondence. And one day, uh, I still have the document. Maybe I'll try to get it published somewhere else and then have like a little thing where it's like, it wasn't up to the standards of now defunct journey, journal of evolutionary, whatever that journal was called, but it was up to the standards of this real journal (laughs)
1: So if, so I guess if sugar is not to blame, what Mm -hmm. is to blame and is is the reason you think sugar is being blamed is because it's being combined with something that's also high fat and highly palatable, palatable, and just be, you know, you just end up overeating it. Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah. You know, there's, there's all these different specializations that people do with nutrition like the hyperpalatable, that's like one topic right mm-hmm. and then there's the um less uh activity physical activity both exercise and non-exercise people just burn less calories um food availability you know cal- caloric availability and, and that it's that it's higher uh endocrine disrupting compounds you know these are all topics that people do research on from the perspective that this is the cause of the obesity epidemic. Um, and it's kind of like uh, there's a, a bit of an embarrassment of riches there. Like you can't have 10 causes for one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so my perspective is that, uh, you know, depending on your personal genetics and lifestyle, and yeah, what your diet is, like different people, some people probably don't do as well on a, like a high sugar diet or a high fat diet as other people. Um, but yeah, there's there's probably uh, components of, of all of those things. Like some people, if they just exercised more, uh, and I've seen this with people, Sometimes, if some people they're overweight, they pick up a exercise routine and don't change anything else and things just fall into place for them. And I've seen other people that do the exact same thing, and they don't really make that much of a dent in their weight. Um, and the same thing with changing diets. You know, you can there. If you've ever like worked with people or really talked to a lot of people, uh, people that you can kind of verify are real uh, that have changed diets. You know, you'll find people that just change one thing or do something specific and uh, fix some sort of problem or drop a bunch of weight. And other people that do the same change and it doesn't uh work for them so yeah i don't think there's really like the obesity epidemic is not to me it's not a physiological thing that's happening it's like a so it's a it's a way of talking about something that is probably has different causes for different people um like it's you know it's not that oh we don't exercise as much and that's why the average BMI is up by X percent. I don't think that's the
1: way to think I, about it. I th- I think we I think as a society we, we want to point to one thing and and just blame that. Um and it, you know, it's like a, a little bit what's been going on as, as as you talk a lot about, it's just like the blame on carbohydrates as the issue. And so everyone's like, okay, you gotta go low carb, gotta go no carb. I mean, I've I I'm I've introduced more carbs into my diet just from just from, you know, research and just from interviewing different individuals like yourself or, um, Danny Roddy or Jay Feldman and things like that. And it's interesting. Um, you know, I've introduced more meals, more carbs, and my weight actually ended up going up a little bit, but then came right back to normal. <laughs> and my, it's the same as it was when I was doing fasting and low carbs. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I'm not saying everyone's like that, but I think we do want to just point to one thing. Um, and, you know, fat burning sounds like nowadays, it's like, you know, sexy, right? Sounds right. And I think it's, and and when I was following it, I thought that would be the right thing to do. Um, what, what, what would be some of the pros and cons of fat burning versus glucose burning and becoming, you know, efficient at, at either one or both? So the biggest problem that I see with humans, it's just
0: this human problem. And there's no way around it, which is that we have a system that probably, for evolutionary reasons, appears to be set up such that uh, when when our bodies perceive a lack of glucose, it is perceived almost identically to just a lack of calories in general. So the same kind of hormones that would release fat stores if you were fasting or indeed starving are called upon when you are just uh not eating carbs and that's kind of the first question one could ask and there's a slew of so you can take that the the road forks there and you can have people that say well therefore that's good like well therefore we're supposed to have you know spikes in cortisol or, or these different types of hormones they're not stress hormones. They're maintenance hormones or whatever. Uh, it, who's that? Um, Amber L. Amber O'Hearn. D- do you know her? Uh, she does carnivore content and okay. she does the most unapologetic carnivore content. And I actually really appreciate it because she just goes full. Like, <laughs> yes, whatever, like whatever stress hormone or whatever you want to call it, that is activated from not consuming carbs that is good you know it's good to have high cortisol or whatever um and then there's another camp that says oh well you know the cortisol sort of normalizes after a while or the the, there's different hormonal profiles that people can have on these high fat diets um but ultimately i mean in order to get fat fatty acids out of fat cells these hormonal cascades do have to be in operation so that you know it doesn't always translate to like if you do a spit test for cortisol you know it can just your cortisol goes up and down during the day at different times it's not necessarily going to correlate but something is activating uh lipolytic proteins to to release fatty acids from cells and the biochemistry of that is pretty pretty clear and it's the same thing as if you if you were in a starvation mode. So beyond just saying this is what happens when your body's burning fat or carbs, uh, which I think I framed that paper that way, is getting into that state of burning fat to me just seems like, um, and, and this is not true for every animal, but for humans it seems like it's a stressful state and it seems like we're set up to try to avoid it. It's almost Uh, like a
1: backup, like a backup.
0: Yeah, that's what it looks like to me. Now, people, (laughs) there's a lot of, you know, you could have a different perspective and say, well, in a world where there aren't carbs available, it was the primary system. And then you can get into a lot of very difficult to answer questions about anthropology. You know, they're always, oh, look, we found another thing that looks like It was used to grind up grains 50,000 years ago or something, you know, things like that Mm -hmm. where people will argue about how much carbohydrate was in the diet of this or that uh, prehistoric population. Um, That is uh, very, that's very dicey. I think dicey territory. Um, There's modern day hunter-gatherers and they seek out, you know, honey and fruit. Uh, whenever possible. So yeah, to me, it seems like, um, I mean, maybe if your background is Inuit, you might be more, in fact, definitely are more uh, adapted to a lower carb diet. But uh, I also don't think, you know, 50,000, it's actually kind of ridiculous that, I mean, you can change the genetics and course epigenetics of a population in just a few generations i mean if you just if the um the the environmental change is strong enough so if you have the invention of grain agriculture even if it was only ten thousand years ago the amount of wars and if you couldn't digest grains you're probably not going to reproduce very well in like egypt or whatever um So I'm pretty confident that uh, people can and do uh, metabolize glucose in a way that's fairly, you know, I I don't think we need like a hundred thousand year old caveman with a packet of sugar or whatever. Um, So yeah, it seems like it's backup system and that's really, that's really what I think is the problem because when it gets, when, when the actual substrates get into the mitochondria. So after all the hormones are done opening up the doors for these different things, whether it's glucose or fatty acids or whatever, you know, ultimately the, the, the carbons and the oxygens and the hydrogens releasing their energy, uh, are not so different. So it's really like the differences are, I would say the biggest, um, the furthest away. So when you're first, your body is first like, Oh no, low blood sugar time to, you know, open up the fat reserves. That's where I see the biggest problem. And then the actual burning of the fuels in real time, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, I think ketones probably a great fuel. Uh, I don't, I don't think there's anything particularly damaging about using them. It's just, It just seems stressful to produce them.
1: So you're talking about, you know, lowering insulin um, will increase glucagon, right. And cortisol and catecholamines, um, and, and put you into a stressful state. And this is, yeah. yeah, And this is just more of a survival mechanism for your body. Um,
0: yeah. And I, I really haven't (laughs) written on this for a while, but when you follow all of the things that happen, like for example, um, thyroid hormone and just your metabolic rate in general is sensitive to not just calories but carbs um the liver that converts a lot of thyroxine into active thyroid hormone is um that process is turned up and down by both just energy amount and by carbs so and if you think of you know a, a hormone like thyroid um or the sex steroids or whatever as like a sort of basal master regulator of just the overall body metabolism. I think the hormone profile of burning carbohydrate as sort of your majority energy source, looks a a little bit better as well. And it looks like if if you're trying to spare thyroid hormone, then you're trying to spare look, that's what happens when, when you're fasting and when you don't have food.
1: Yeah. I mean, when it comes to fasting, it's something that I promoted for a long time, and I did. I will say that I think it can play a role in individuals' lives because uh, I always like to say it gives you it can give an individual structure to their day and to you know when and and you know when they're eating per se. Like if you're eating late into the evening, it's not going to play a positive role in probably sleep um, and digestion. And things like that. Uh, so I like to use it almost as like a a bumper on each side of the day, where you don't need to take a bite of food the second you get up, and you don't. And you probably should be waiting, you know, eating your last meal, let's say, three hours before you go to sleep. Um, but between those two things, um, in the middle of the day, I think it, you know, I think a lot of it depends, maybe genetically, what's worked for you in the past, and also your activity level. Yeah, I'm pretty impressed with
0: what they came up with by say the 18th or 19th century, you know, the sort of three meals a day thing. I, I'm actually pretty impressed with that. I think uh you know, people on both sides, you know, you've got people, oh, you need to like I guess the bodybuilder culture um you know, six meals a day or whatever and right. If that's, you know, maybe that's if you're trying to like gain, you know, bulk, right. You might have to do that, but um and then of course on the other side, there's the fasting culture or the one meal a day culture that people are always criticizing. I, I I'm pretty uh yeah, I think I think three meals a day is like um a really good discovery that was made, <laughs> you know, in well, the the dawn of the scientific that? era. <laughs> was
1: it the food companies? I mean, you know, the, the food companies <laughs> discovered snacking, I know that, or a lot of these companies, right? Well, snacking to- used to be uh
0: because one of my professors was from england and he always talked about that he he worked in the lab of uh, hans krebs the guy that discovered the citric acid cycle and when he was growing up uh, as a boy in england you would get he, he made this joke because um eating more smaller meals was getting popular uh you know papers coming out like oh if you eat this in between meals you i don't know whatever like blunt insulin spikes or satiety blah 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 and he was just laughing because he was like when i was a kid you would get in trouble for doing that it was called snacking mm-hmm. and it was against the rules <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so these things have changed drastically um both at the level of, of culture and even of the the science because i'm sure there was science back then to support not snacking and now you know who's to say if the science supporting snacking is better i mean
1: yeah um, I think you could probably take a, a little bit of everything. I mean, three meals a day, I think is, 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 is probably a good way to go as long as you're eating things that are like satiating. Um, and, and maybe that's the big criticism of sugar is you're not getting, you know, maybe it's efficient for you to burn it. Um, but are you getting any nutrients from it? You know, um, well, I know you, you're, you're into Ray Pete stuff. I don't know if you're still into it is much now but you mentioned coffee and 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 orange juice what what's the what would be the basis behind uh ray pete and what he talked about with with like coffee and and orange juice (laughs) yeah he has like almost a
0: like a mystical relationship with some of these foods um Mm. or at least i guess people imputed that on the internet but coffee he would describe as the closest thing that you could come dietarily to a thyroid like action on the body so you know increase your metabolism of course anybody who's ever done like a professional bodybuilding or fitness cut knows that caffeine is in uh every products to yeah. cut weight if you're you know really cranking your body like that which is not healthy but
1: <laughs> you right. know, if
0: you have to get to like stage you know uh, some type of competition where you have to be like you know eight percent body fat is kind of fat <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um and aspirin he talks about aspirin quite a bit too yeah so uh the orange juice I think he just thinks it's um a good source of calories it has potassium and uh that there's something about like ripe oranges he says and if they're strained, um that it it Oh, it, it it does lower endotoxin, postprandial endotoxin, for whatever reason. I don't know. I guess he just thought it was a really just a very neutral source of calories and some minerals from the oranges. Um, the aspirin that that I actually uh pretty much agree with. Um, it blocks the production of of some of the prostaglandins.
1: And um, yeah, he's he's written pretty extensively on aspirin.
0: Yeah. So one of the main potential ways that having uh, maybe too much of the omega six fatty acids floating around could be a problem is that uh, we have a lot of enzymes that make them into other things, like endocannabinoids or eicosanoids, uh, and you know, some of those. The literature is a little weird because um, it's like, oh, these ones, you know, these. Prostaglandins or these thromboxanes or whatever are inflammatory, and these ones resolve inflammation. Oftentimes, the same one is in both categories. It both isn't, you know, present at high levels at the initiation of an inflammatory event and at the resolution of it. So, the way it's kind of confusing to talk about this, but if you think of our system as having a basic fatty acid profile, from historical diet and how that diet has changed to have, for example, more of the omega-6 fatty acids, and we have the same amount of enzymes that deal with them, then you can imagine that there's probably just sort of excess of those eicosanoids floating around, especially if you have some type of uh, inflammatory environment in your body. Um, And aspirin just, it basically blocks that conversion uh, as its main effect
1: um all right Kyle is there anything else that we that we want to hit on um uh how about gut
0: <laughs> yeah um so having gone through all these diets um I'm I'm actually not too uh I'm not too stuck either way on like what we know as you said you added carbs back and you gained a little bit of weight and then it went back to normal or to what it was before Mm -hmm. things like that the same thing more or less happened to me uh i I did go through this i think i was like 165 pounds or something and then i became influenced by repeat and then one day i stepped on a scale at my cousin's house because i didn't have one at my house and i was like i gained over 10 pounds Mm um and I was like, oh my God, but I didn't, my clothes actually didn't fit that much differently. And then, uh, months go by, I still didn't have a scale. And then I entered a jujitsu competition. So I had to weigh myself and I was like one sixty seven. This was, um, I was not like, uh, really good at eyeballing what was going on with my weight. And, uh, you know, some people just gain and lose like 10 pounds and, and not notice it. So I was in that kind of mindset with my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that did happen to me. And then I went on an extended period where I was just slamming tons of ice cream and I gained more weight and I noticed it was fat because my clothes did fit differently. And I actually mm. had to try to lose that weight. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I don't think people should do like the meme internet meme version of the repeat diet necessarily, and just eat a bunch of sugar or ice cream or whatever. Um, but as far as chronic health problems, are concerned. Um, I think that's probably the biggest source of possibly the obesity thing, but I think more so the metabolic side, like the insulin resistance situation uh, and a lot of different inflammatory chronic conditions is probably lipopolysaccharide uh, endotoxin from bacteria. And it's very unfortunate that saturated fats Uh, for reasons of chemistry, are much more efficient at ushering them across the enterocytes. So in other words, if you have a population of endotoxin-producing bacteria in your gut and you eat a meal of saturated fat, more of the endotoxin that they have shed will make its way into your system. Um, So I think this is probably one of the reasons for why really low fat diets seem to help people um and also cutting out carbs because if you get rid of sugars you probably knock down those populations mm. um maybe shuffle them around or whatever it is right so it's like one or the other way of of kind of decreasing this
1: particularly harmful molecule um is there a way to know if you're if you have this endotoxemia um i
0: wish Uh, the, it, it, there, there's, you can test for it as a science. Like there's, um, one of the things that convinced me this was such a common problem is anytime I would read a paper that had it as a test, like for example, uh, heart disease research, um, whenever they tested the people who had heart disease, they, those people had pretty bad postprandial, prandial endotoxemia. So after a meal, they would have quite elevated levels in their blood of endotoxin compared to just whatever the average is, which is never nothing, by the way. <laughs> so it's like this constant assault um, on your body. And yeah, I, I'm not aware of any kind of commercial or even you know, pr- private personal medical doctor test for that. I've only seen it in the context of uh, research. Uh, which is very annoying because, as somebody who yeah is is interested in people being healthy, um, there are things like I'm not. I used to be like a total libertarian about health stuff, and I was like, oh, people should just be able to buy any drug they want at any store, you know. Mm. Um, so not not to be that extreme or anything, but I do think tests like post, <laughs> like if you could just do a blood test, you know, after a meal for something like that, for something that is so obviously uh, causes problems to so many people. Uh, I think that should be available. And, you know, all these other te- there's a lot of tests that are done that are, don't give as quality information. Um, so I find that very annoying, but no, as far as I know, maybe there's some people with like super great sources of really weird tests online, you know, where you send your blood in and stuff like that, that, that yeah. are aware of them,
1: but I am not. I'm actually going through a certification, uh, through functional diagnostic nutrition, and there's quite a bit of testing. Um, you know, some of it's saliva, blood, um, even feces, um, stool, actually stool. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely some cool testing out there. Um, how, what would you say, um, for endotoxemia, some of the biggest culprits and maybe what some things people can do? I know that, um, Ray P talks about the carrot salad and helping with gut motility and and that might be the reason why he likes coffee as well because it um you know can mm-hmm. help um obviously make you regular. Yeah.
0: Um that's a really tough question because I I think that the individual responses to diet and how it works in your gut is is probably pretty divergent like you know, um, one way to, to know this, I think is if you see a question of research flipping back and forth a lot. So for example, uh, I don't you, you've probably seen ever since I was a kid, I remember like, brand muffins, the, you know, brand muffins oh. prevent colon cancer. And then next year brand muffins don't you know do nothing to prevent colon cancer. And it's just always flip-flopping or like the eggs, you know, cholesterol and heart disease or whatever. Oh, eggs cause heart disease. Oh, no, they don't cause heart disease. So to me, from my perspective, when you see something like that happening where it's flipping back and forth, you're just seeing uh, it's like a, a epistemological confusion about what they're asking. What they're doing is just kind of <laughs> like there's enough of X type of responder in this one group and, and they don't actually know how to weed out for that because it's just a bunch of factors like genetic or otherwise that are just unknowable uh, at this point in time. And then in the next study, they have Y responders, you know, up to an amount where you get a different result. And it's kind of, you know, um, if that just happened once, obviously, the, but if it's like something that you keep seeing opposing studies, this and that, this and that, then I, I think it's a problem of not understanding what the question you're even asking and not being able to create groups. Because, um, yeah, some people have really great gut motility and, you know, don't have any, notice any symptoms, GI symptoms on a higher fiber diet. Whereas, especially in the repeat world, a lot of people will experiment with just cutting out fiber or the carnivore world and have some type of negative symptom reduction. You know, they had something before. Uh, so I don't know, but what you should do is you should never, <laughs> you should certainly like being constipated. And having, um, t- to the extent that you can perceive it, like a-, a really slow gut motility is never good. Yeah. So whatever you have to do, uh, not, not uh, like pharmaceutically, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> um, but whatever, if you've noticed that your gut feels better on a certain diet, um, that's something to pay attention to. Even if you think that food for some other reason isn't that good, like you have some you were just reading things like this food is bad but your personal experience is that you know you should you should pay attention to a few things like that um things like your gut function uh sleep uh ability and quality things like that should never be um ignored in the face of like um an idea that you have about what's a healthy diet you know when you change like if you change and you Those things specifically, those kinds of like basic function things
1: get worse. Really, really think twice about that. Yeah, I think now that I'm in like the health world, I'm super aware of that. Uh, But back when I was like in high school, I think I remember, I don't think I remember having days where I'd have literally like three bowls of cereal per day. It was like my main meal as my main meal. And I remember after a while, like I was just getting a lot of gas and bloating and once I finally realized that I probably should be eating cereal three times a day and stuff like that, like Frosted Flakes and stuff. So I, uh, <laughs> I mean that this was a long time ago, but like now I'm I'm super like sensitive and aware of like how foods, how I react to foods. And again, if it's a one off, it's not the biggest deal. But if you're noticing over and over again, this is causing some type of issue, gas, bloating, or uh, even just causing constipation um, probably something's going on there. so uh, I would you know, it's like I think that's why, like you said, some people have success in like a carnivore diet because it's like almost the ultimate elimination diet, um, mm-hmm. where they're getting rid of a lot of these gut stressors um and getting relief and maybe some endotoxin relief as well from their gut and so they're 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 getting you know great results and, this could be something that could they could do for a while and then maybe reintroduce certain foods at some point.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think um, like elimination diet type stuff, I, I think is fine. But like just my personal perspective is that one should aim for being able to eat most normal foods. I think that would be a sign of health. You know, I don't think it's a sign of health to have really big negative reaction to a lot of commonly eaten foods if you have certain things that you can't eat you can't eat them but i don't think it should be a goal you know to be on a very restrictive diet um i think that that in and of itself yeah kind of almost is like a um self fulfilling lifestyle where like you cut things out and it's it's hard to go back to them um and you kind of don't have a lot of latitude lifestyle wise like i when i was on weird diets i i didn't really i centered my life so much about about it you know about oh well if i go on a vacation somewhere where am i going to get my specifically pennsylvania dutch raw milk or whatever meat thing i was doing yeah can't go many places probably yeah and it's just um if it was true that any specific diet, some very specific diet just got rid of all of your disease risk and made you live twice as long and perform super high, it would probably be worth it, you know, to be really uh, obsessive compulsive about it. But at least my experience and my understanding of the literature is that that's probably not the situation. You can probably tweak things for yourself, you know, in a positive way a little bit like 10 15% here and there but cutting out something or adding something or whatever isn't going to make you live twice as long most likely yeah
1: yeah no i think that's it that's true i mean if you can if you have flexibility as far as eating things that you that you want and then you can have a variety in your diet that shows that you know you probably have a healthy gut microbiome as opposed to just always trying to restrict and cut out everything uh, maybe initially, but not long-term. Um, well, as we're getting towards the end, a question that I ask all my guests are, if you were going to give one tip to an individual that was looking to get their their body back to what it once was 10, 15 years ago, what one tip would you give that individual? Oof, 10, 15 years ago. So we're talking about... So you're somebody... how old are you, 37? No, you're 39. 39, yeah. Yeah, so let's say we're getting back to like your... 25 years old uh well i mean i have specific issues from uh, like
0: a lifetime of brazilian Ah. (laughs) jiu-jitsu but um so i would actually sort of give like a if it's a person like that you know i would give like um you know exercise like i've changed how i work out almost completely like i focus on um like joint health you know and uh, watching stuff like that uh what's it called squat university do you know that youtube channel mm-hmm, sure. it's like the, yeah stuff like that you know um because when you're younger I mean, this is gonna sound, I sound like an old person but
1: <laughs> you, yeah i know what you're yeah i think i know what you're gonna say <laughs> trust me i'm in that industry when you're younger you could probably get away with a lot right as opposed yeah, to yeah and you know. you're not like
0: you, you don't necessarily it's really hard to um It's a very unfortunate thing about life. But if you were to just do little things like pay attention to, you know, squat form or something, especially if you're lifting heavy or if you're doing wrestling and grappling and just thinking about how your knees and ankles are moving and doing things correctly, even though you can just do something explosively and it doesn't hurt that day, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to, uh, um, to keep that in mind and then sometimes by the time you know so so yeah for somebody to to get back uh how their body was um you have to put in more basically more effort uh to get there so if you're if you want to get back to a certain type of like athletic performance then you have to put in i don't know like two or three times as much um preparatory work, like warming up. And as far as, uh, overall health and stuff, like you, you just have to multiply, um, you know, you might've been able to eat X diet and and be lean and feel good most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you should sort of have to just be more, um, picky about that kind of stuff, but it's so individual, you know?
1: Yeah. No, I, but hey, I, give give the carrot a try. You know, give the, the carrot, give the that. raw carrot a try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're younger, you can definitely get away with more. But um, I think when you get older, like you said, you have to just put you have to be more mindful of what you're doing. Um, and you know, you're 39. I'm 43. Um, yeah, my 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 uh, introduction or getting into my workouts are different as they were. When you when you're 20, you could just start bench, you know, doing whatever, no warm up, but definitely now, you know, I'm a big golfer. Tiger Woods would talk about he'd he'd have a tee time at 6:30. He'd be up at four, starting like all his like physio work and getting the body prepped and ready to go. And and recovery also takes longer when you're mm-hmm. when you're a little bit older. So I think if you're mindful of of having your days off and 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 just how you're feeling. um, as opposed to when you're younger, you probably don't need as much recovery time. Um, but recovery is just as important as the actual workout. So, yeah. And you're not really getting away with it by the way. Like I
0: have a lower back injury that I gave myself when I first started lifting when I was younger and I'm more aware of it now, Mm -hmm. but I, I know that I caused it then and I could feel it back when I was like 17 or whatever. Um, and also I had, uh, I had a tendon tear and I had an MRI for it before reattachment surgery. And they just found a shoulder tear just as an incidental finding <laughs> oh, Wow! Um, that I'm sure that I got doing jujitsu and not tapping, you know, from different shoulder uh, submissions. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought I was getting away with it, right? Like, cause I, I always had like flexible shoulders and it's like, oh, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting away with this. I can get away with this. Well, maybe you're not getting away with it. Maybe you should actually just be
1: responsible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: but it's very, you know, humans, they react to like what hurts in the moment, you know?
1: hmm Interesting. Well, Kyle, thanks for coming on, sharing all the knowledge. Best place for people to find you? Are you putting content out there? Uh, I've taken a break
0: since uh, moving and, and doing a different, um, working in a different lab, I think my last video, so I have a YouTube channel, NutriCronology. Okay. N-U-T-R-I-C-R-I-N-O-L-O-G-Y. Uh the last video I was probably like last October or November. Okay.
1: Um, but yeah, I will uh someday <laughs> get back into it. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Um, well, I appreciate it, Kyle. And um uh yeah, enjoy the rest of your day and thanks for coming on the podcast.